0: This one podcast I've been listening to, he's hmm. been starting off the podcast by telling everyone to take a deep breath in
1: and out. Oh, you actually recording this for the show? Because I just started typing over you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like disrespect. <laughs> disrespect. <laughs> I ain't doing a breathing exercise. No
0: breathing exercises for you?
1: I was just saying to Sam this week that films keep having these bits where like a character says to another character, just breathe, just <gasps> And then I'm like, why is everyone breathing at the moment? <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm sick of it. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week is the second episode in our mini-season on all things adaptation. And no, we do not mean the 2002 Nicolas Cage movie of the same name. Instead, we're going to be talking about Emily Dickinson and three very different screen interpretations of her life. Dickinson, Wild Nights with Emily, and A Quiet Passion. Is it A Quiet Passion or is it Quiet Passion? Because... The version I saw was labelled quiet passion, but I always thought it was a quiet passion. Oh, I thought it was a quiet passion. A quiet passion sounds better. So it for the does. sake of this podcast, we'll call it that. It feels <laughs> <laughs> like to. the Berenstain, but the Mandala effect. Mm, yeah. Mm. That's right. That's what it, it is. It really just depends Let on which like <laughs> timeline you live in, honestly. Oh, maybe we live in different ones. Mm. A lot of things would be explained. Now, big spoiler alert for those of you who have not watched them already. That's right. We're we're going in deep. We're going in deep.
0: But I think that you can still appreciate... We're not going to give everything away. Well, for one of them, we we will, actually. So we've wanted to cover Emily Dickinson on the show for a long time. So I'm excited that we are finally going to get into it. So initially... Emily was a writer that I had planned to include in why she wrote, because there's so many parallels between her life and Emily Bronte, really. She gives me Emily Bronte Mm -hmm. vibes. Um, But I ended up not putting her in, uh, partially because the Madeline Olenek movie, Wild Nights with Emily, is definitely the story that I wanted to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to just like straight up copy her screenplay. (laughs) and then also barrett browning who replaced her um i love that we actually got a little love story in there as well yeah
1: i do love that story
0: yeah so Mm. um so yeah but i'm going to talk about emily on the show and i think that this discussion will give us some good insight into why understanding her is like such a
1: challenge because we love trying to understand an emily oh gosh it's like our thing that is
0: our thing (laughs) We have an episode entitled "Understanding Emily," but it is about the the Bronte
1: Emily. So yeah, Emily Bean or Emily D, right? If this was like a high school drama, but they'd be best friends. <laughs> oh my
0: gosh, I feel like we should do some sort of like you know like Monster Girl High, but with uh, yeah with women I'd call writers, it
1: teen lit, teen lit, <laughs> and they all go to high school together.
0: They do. And the Emily's, mm. like, maybe they're competing against each other at first, but then they realize that they're BFFs. Yeah. They initially don't like each other because they, they're so similar.
1: One of them's the new go. Mm-hmm. Emily D's the new go. Yeah. And Charlotte gets, like, real jealous. Yeah. Oh, Charlotte <laughs> would be so jealous. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Emily was born on December 10th, 1830, in Amherst, Massachusetts, to Edward Dickinson and Emily Norcross Dickinson. She had an older brother, Austin, and a younger sister, Lavinia. And in a letter to her friend, Thomas Wentworth Higginson,
1: remember that name? That's going to come up again. She wrote, I have a brother and sister. My mother does not care for thought and father too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books but begs me not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. Cute quote, isn't that cute? Super cute.
0: Mind joggling aside, the Emily Dickinson Museum says that her education was exceptional for a girl in the early in the early 19th century, but not unusual for a girl in Amherst. Not only did she attend a local school district and Amherst Academy, but she also spent a year at Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, the longest she ever spent away from home. Sounds like another Emily, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That famous daguerreotype of Emily, the one that you guys have all seen, um, that is the only That is one of possibly only two that we
1: have. We'll get into that. (laughs) That was a very polite way of putting it, Right, unclear, unclear. (laughs) There's
0: another one out that has been verified, unverified, verified, unverified. I think it's verified. Um, But that one that you you are probably picturing in your mind's eye right now was actually taken at Mount Holyoke. And also a fun fact about that picture is that um, after Emily died, Everyone like sort of went to that picture to use, you know, for like advertising her books and they definitely um, photoshopped the hell out of it. There's so many like early photoshopped versions where they like gave her a collar or they made her lips bigger or they made her hair darker. And I was like, man, immediately got on photoshopping that gal.
1: Now, unlike some of the writers we've covered, Emily doesn't seem to have given much thought to writing until her 20s, according to the biographies I read Mm -hmm. while writing this. Uh, It's said that as she began to grow in intellect, her social circle diminished. So it's like the more she was thinking about the world and her place in the world, the less she was kind of wanting to just hang out. Yeah. She's got a a lot on her mind. Mm hmm. By the end of her life it is believed that she saw very few people beyond her family circle Mm -hmm. and in 1886 at the age of 55 she succumbed to a two-year battle with Bright's disease and it was then after her death that her sister Lavinia discovered nearly the full extent of Emily's writing which was uh, nearly 1800 poems. In her lifetime, Emily did publish 10 of her poems and it was in publication that they got titles because she actually didn't, she didn't want to like name her work. Mm -hmm. So those were added by in the publishing process and it was in publishing like the rest of her poems after her death that the real battle to define who she was began. And that has been raging on until today
0: (laughs) and it's something that like we've seen before right like this comes up time Mm -hmm. and time again on the show the people picking and choosing elements of a life that sort of best fit their agenda so in 1890 the thomas wentworth higgins we mentioned earlier and one mabel loomis todd published the first collection of her work it was later discovered that both heavily edited the poetry The biggest omission being the name Susan from some of those poems. And who was Susan? Well, in 1856, Emily's older brother, Austin, had married a local girl, Susan Huntington Gilbert. Emily's relationship with Susan spanned 50 plus years and has been contested. Right? This is (laughs) Mm -hmm. lovers, best friends. Besties. Collaborators. What's going on here? So originally presented to readers as a close friendship, it is now believed to many that Susan was the great love of Emily's life. So it's worth noting, too, that Mabel Loomis Todd, responsible for the earliest erasure of Susan, was also Austin Dickinson's mistress. Very important. I believe they like give you this fact on like page one for Lives Like Loaded Guns. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They're like, listen, <laughs> this isn't about this is about an affair. Here we go.
1: And so now we've covered, I'd say, the bare basics. We're gonna talk about these on-screen explorations of her life and how, quite frankly, they do each add to the confusion mm-hmm. a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh we made a point of watching and re-watching all of them. I did them all in a week. And I definitely came away just feeling like super confused about what is fact and what is fiction. Although I do, I think I've got a pretty good idea just from seeing like what was common between-
0: Between the three, yeah.
1: Trying to to see what was coming up the most. Yeah, And then disregarding the, well, we'll talk about the one I disregarded. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So first up, I think we should talk about Dickinson just because it was my first introduction to her beyond reading like a few of her poems. Oh really? Oh cool. Okay. Mhm. And it really, yeah, it really shaped how I viewed the other two because mm-hmm. I watched them like after that. Sure. Dickinson is a 2019 comedy television series starring Hayley Steinfeld. I wrote Springfield.
0: <laughs> auto correct. It's is probably auto correct.
1: <laughs> no, I thought that was a Hannah correct. I definitely just wrote her name wrong. Uh, Dickinson is a 2019 comedy television series starring Hayley Steinfeld in the titular role. It was created by Alina Smith for Apple TV and it's a coming of age story really that follows the lives of Dickinson, her family and the wider community of Amherst as the young writer really struggles to find her voice and place in the world. Now, despite its period costumes and setting, Dickinson frequently uses modern language and contemporary music, which makes it very clear while we're watching it that while it's broadly exploring the writer's life, it also wants to say something about the time we're living in. The themes explored in the poetry are personified in the show, just one example being Wiz Khalifa's cameo as Death, to me, presenting Dickinson as a vivacious, kooky, you can't deny it, but determined young woman just feels like a real feminist reclamation of the author, who I think we all kind of grew up thinking was just like, living in her house, not talking to anyone.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, she is very much presented in high school over here when we, we study her, because I will say Emily Dickinson is probably one of the few women that we will regularly find on the Mm -hmm. curriculum um, as sort of this like tragic, kooky, virgin genius that like lived this sheltered life shut up in her home. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how she's presented here. Sort of so almost like saintly for the literary bros, right?
1: Yeah, which makes sense why she's, like, taught and included because she's got, like, that clean... Right. That clean history. She's, like, acceptable. Right.
0: Nothing could be
1: dangerous or, she's made or <laughs> about sex,
0: right? Like, because mm-hmm. she wouldn't know anything about that. To prep for this episode, I read so many interviews with Elena Smith and... um, or Is it Alina? I think Alina. Here's a great quote about Dickinson if you're sort of unsure about what the show is and if maybe you're hesitant to jump in because
1: I, yeah, I was super hesitant just because it was hyped so much. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm above it. I'm not, turns out I'm not above it.
0: (laughs) So Alina said, um, the thing that's really important to remember about Dickinson is that we are using period as a sort of styled way of looking at present In some sense, you could do that with any historical figure. But I guess the reason why it's cool to do so with Emily Dickinson is that, first of all, she wasn't very well understood in her own time. She was definitely somebody whose consciousness exceeded her own time. Also, she was somebody who was breaking the rules in her own work and really challenging formal structures. All of which is to say that I'm just as present with these characters and what they are going through as as I would be if I was writing a show set in 2020. And I'm looking for moments and experiences that blur the line between present and past. I love that line because I'm like, that's, Mm -hmm. I think, what we're exactly trying to do on Bonnet to Dawn. Um, But ultimately, I'm trying to talk about now. I'm trying to say that our world today is constrictive in many ways that might remind us of a Victorian corset corset people like don't don't at me this is Smith's <laughs> words <laughs> this isn't a show about what it was like to be alive in the past and um, you know she has gone on to say the past and present are not as far apart as we'd like to think particularly for women people of color queer people anyone who has been traditionally marginalized by what we call history and I thought that was a banger of a line so i have just binged the second series of dickinson and um i really love the second series because it it sort of opened up the world a little bit i think the first series Mm -hmm. sort of took place quite a bit mostly just in the homestead really i feel like we didn't really get out too much
1: well i feel like season one was her like trying to trying to define herself as a writer to her family Mm And then she kind of gets that acceptance, even if it's just within herself at the end of season one, and then so season two, the arc isn't I'm a writer, like she's established as a writer at that point, so it can like open up beyond that,
0: yeah, and we're getting more um we're getting this sort of meditation on like fame and celebrity mm-hmm. and what you actually yeah. want, like from your writing to put out. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really hard to choose a favorite episode this season because I love the seance one. That's very mm-hmm. on brand for me. And I also feel like Vinny this year, Lavinia, her sister, has been such a really fun character. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my gosh, she does do a little Scarlet Letter roleplay with her <laughs> fiancé, which was really great. But um, I really liked the opera episode and the spa mm-hmm. episode. And I think the spa episode was really interesting because like you get that's where I'm feeling like the past and the present, like sort of mm-hmm. just being like next door to each other. Um. So anyway, she has a spa day. She's trying to reset, relax, but she absolutely can't because her her head is on fire with all of these ideas about writing and uh, publishing and all of the like spa treatments. I'm like. I feel like they still offer the these. I think this is still oh, the 100% same. Oh, one hundred percent they right? do. Yeah, and it's sort of it's has funny like a too like sort of ness to it all.
1: Yeah, definitely the goop thing because um, it we I think we talked about it most when we did our North and South read along, but it's like the the Christian. Um, the way that the way that people kind of like held themselves above other other people in society would have been like, I'm like the vicar or I'm the vicar's wife. And it was like educating people. Everything was like through the church. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like religious superiority. And I think that religious superiority in our age has been replaced with wellness superiority. Yeah. So it was really interesting to see them playing with wellness culture in that setting mm-hmm. and, like, the arm and, like, how everyone's kind of reacting to it and just trying to, like, move through things. Um, yeah, I had this <laughs> When we watched, we watched the Bo Burnham Inside special and he has, like, a song about, like, wellness and, like, and he makes loads of comparisons to Christ in it and I was like, oh, Bo Burnham, that's so smart. It felt like a Bonnets at Dawn song. <laughs> I, like, tried to explain this to Sam and he didn't get it. But, yeah, I thought the, the spa episode was yeah that was my favorite from season two as well oh was it Mm, and just well it gives you the opportunity to just place all of those characters who really just need to have a conversation together Mm -hmm. and then just seeing them still not have the conversations and it's it's nice to just like see
0: that aspect of victorian culture as well which Mm -hmm. is why i also like the opera episode like i want to see what's what the conversations are in popular culture Um, Which is Mm. one of the things that I really like about Dickinson, like all of those things are discussed, including sort of like the build up to the Civil War, uh, which Mm -hmm. is a big, big theme of season two. It does feel like lived. It feels like that is happening in America. Right. Mm There is a tension. Um, There is a whole storyline about a black man named Henry who has an underground press
1: it, yeah, it doesn't feel rushed at all because I think it would have been very easy for them to have like an episode where they're like, the war is coming, and then the the war is mm-hmm. it like in the next episode. But you don't have that. It's like the whole season is the build up to it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So I would like to give an honourable mention to Jane Krakowski, who I think is my favourite character in the show. She plays Emily's mum, and um. Yeah, I, f- I keep saying to Lauren that I want to see, like, more Austen adaptations, but by, like, American comedic actors. Yeah, which I keep going. Huh. She she is exactly why. Like, I would love to see her do, like, a Miss Bennet or a Mrs. Dashwood mm-hmm. even. um, And just, yeah, have that, like, r- a really sharp, witty Austen thing just with, like, an international cast. And I would just immediately just cast her. Her is, like, maybe even Lady Catherine. I don't know. I think... <laughs> Just give give her a roll, please, someone.
0: (laughs) I would love to see this sort of style comedy done with an Austin property or about Austin's Mm -hmm. life. It would be really fun.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's funny because I actually said to Sam, and this isn't like a huge criticism, um, we don't don't really learn about Emily Dickinson in school. And so this being my first introduction to her, I was saying like, I think everything about it is so fun, but I don't know enough about her to like pull apart the fact of the fiction. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was someone like Austin, I'd be able to recognize it more. And I don't know how that would affect, like it doesn't affect me watching it, but it it made watching the other films we're gonna talk about, very, I was just like, what is going on? Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) With like the timelines, Mm -hmm. like what is happening. Visually, this is my favorite. yeah I think like the costumes are amazing the houses look amazing um yeah I just I love Dickinson more than I thought I would oh I'm glad you do I
0: I actually I love it too I that's interesting hearing your perspective as a Brit because I definitely think um one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot this season is sort of like when you do an adaptation you have to pick a knowledge level right you have
1: to pick Mm -hmm. an audience
0: so like
1: yeah, absolutely. To walk like invisible. To walk invisible.
0: <laughs> Hi. Hi. That is for Bronte fans, right? I think mm. it's, it's a harder movie for people with no Bronte knowledge to sort of get into or really get all the nods and the winks. And I think Dickinson probably is very specifically aimed at a young American audience to combat like what they're learning in school about her, essentially. Mm-hmm.
1: It does mean it is It is perfect for people that don't know about her because until you maybe watch another one, you really aren't questioning anything that you see. Mm-hmm. You can just take it for granted mm-hmm. that, you know, there's no back and forth like, well, did that happen then? And did this happen here? And that's this part's obviously a joke. I was just like, this is this is all happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I learn a lot from the show. Like, obviously, I take it with a grain of salt. I know that everything mm-hmm. that they do on the show is sort of based in some sort of truth and then dramatized. Um, but it does help me like connect certain names. Like Wentworth mm-hmm. Higginson comes up all the time, sort of in our research. Yeah. And so it's kind of like nice almost to put like a face to it. Like, oh, okay, I get, I get who this guy is. Yeah. And well, sort that connection of like, is- yeah, in the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, I feel like we need that for the U- the UK publishing scene, especially like with the Gaskells and the Brontes and everyone like the same publishers keep coming up and everyone's having dinner with everyone. Mm-hmm. I would like a UK Dickinson. And- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the one... Mrs. Gaskell, do it about Mrs. Gaskell and her dinner parties. <laughs> the one I would, I think would really work
0: is like with the romantics. I just, I'm reading young <laughs> romantics on the side. And it begins with like Lee Hunt and he has been thrown in jail and then he like redoes his jail cell and like everyone comes to visit him, like Byron and stuff. It's really just like, you guys have all of the players you just need. You just (laughs) need the game now. I was just going to say that I I think that this show, what I like about it too is that it has a very clearly defined audience and like point of view. And Mm -hmm. that point of view is not going to be for everyone, and that's fine. Like, it's not asking, mm-hmm. it's not saying, like, this is a universal show that everyone needs to love. It's saying, we're doing this very specific thing. Like, you can get on the train or you can just let it pass you by. So, next up for discussion is Wild Nights with Emily, a 2018 romantic comedy written and directed by Madeline Olneck, starring Molly Shannon as Emily Dickinson. This film is based on actual events. Dickinson's letters and poems and explores her pursuit of publication. So like Dickinson, the TV series Wild Nights with Emily explores the romantic relationships between Emily and Sue and ventures into territory we imagine will be covered in the third season of the Apple TV show. Now, I am not going to tell you a ton about this movie because we have an interview with Madeline next week. But I do want to say that this is the story that I was interested in with regards to Dickinson, and I mean Dickinson the person, not the show.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. The, all the all the D's are going to get I confusing, know it's gonna guys. Get... In. <laughs> yeah.
0: So this is the story that explores the myth, the afterlife, the drama with her brother and his mistress, Mabel Todd. um I remember reading Lives Like Loaded Guns about Emily, Mabel, and her family, and I was just like, this has everything. It's got the myth-making, betrayal, drama, sex, egomaniacs, and that is very much what Wild Nights is giving you.
1: Yeah, 100%. I was while watching it, just completely obsessed with the way it explored legacy and that juxtaposition between true events Mm -hmm. and the talks that Mabel Todd was giving about a woman she never met. (laughs) The movie makes it very Um, clear. (laughs) Yeah, the movie, and it's so funny. Um, I like too that um, in the film, Todd describes herself as Dickinson's first ever editor as like a matter of pride Mm -hmm. when we know that her editing removed any mention of Sue the wife of the man she was shagging right. and it did a really wonderful job of just presenting and playing with that hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. It was interesting too because obviously the third season of Dickinson has been greenlit and it is coming mm-hmm. but I feel like Wild Nights kind of covers what future seasons of Dickinson will cover mm-hmm. so it was like a nice follow-on to watch it after watching the first two seasons of that yeah. It's was like oh these fit together really well for me to like get an idea of her life
0: Mm -hmm. one one thing i think that is actually interesting too about the movie is that it doesn't feel claustrophobic Mm -hmm. which is interesting which is something and actually the show dickinson as well like both i think make a point of showing you that this woman was not trapped in her house Mm -hmm. um they're showing you women that have like full lives she gardens she bakes She lives a few feet away from her creative and romantic partner. She's Mm -hmm. close to her niece and nephew. She writes. She receives company. The company that she wants to receive, I think, is very important. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And also her story is going to be so true for so many women who just didn't have the means to travel in the same way that men had and their lives, like, They didn't get to travel, so I'm not going to say their lives were no less rich, because I'm sure a lot of them would have wanted Mm -hmm. to. But you can still live a full life and stay close to home. And I think it's like a very male perspective of the time to think that she was just at home doing literally nothing. (laughs) Just home, Um, daydreaming. Just like staring at the Mm -hmm. wall, just like hitting her head against the wall, (laughs) just over and over again. And I think there was a, a bit that really speaks to this where like the misunderstanding when um Sue and Emily are lying in bed and Sue look is looking at Emily's white dress and Emily's defense of just wearing this um this outfit that subverts gender norms and social expectations mm-hmm. that she's just wearing the same outfit it's why it's not it's kind of it's like almost um uh, Anne style yeah. thing where maybe like the impact of her wearing it doesn't translate into today but it would have been like notable that she was wearing it at the time mm-hmm. um, and Emily says to her I don't want to spend any part of my brain thinking about what to wear I want to save all of my deciding for my writing and I thought that that line was genius because it's just it's presented so matter-of-factly it's, it's presented as making sense rather than presenting this as like another way of it's not used to like codify her oddness, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. It's kind of bringing back the power to her decisions as like a rational human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's
0: a that's something you can see that like Madeline and uh, Elena are doing with Emily in both mm-hmm. versions of yeah, her. Like we really want to yeah. understand her, and. Um, they're also battling these myths of like, this might seem odd, but yeah, like, how do we how do we rationalize it? I really love the scene with Emily and Judge Lord. So Judge Lord is a much older man, and he's a friend of her father's. And he's very, like, patronizing and someone that Emily is just tolerating in this scene. <laughs> you know, practically rolling her eyes at him. And uh, at one point, they are discussing the Brontes. And Judge Lord gets Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre confused and he calls it Wuthering Jane. And then says that he thinks that the point of the story is that a plain woman can lo- that a plain woman can be loved by a fire victim.
1: Which his delivery on that line was great. <laughs> it's really funny. It sounds like that's stu- i I'm sorry, this really stupid meme where Pride and Prejudice is just people visiting each other's houses. Yeah. Like, when that gets sent around, yeah. this is, like, the... This is that, but to... Jane Yes, Ed, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's so good. And um, then, of course, he calls Emily Jane, and he just, like, he has no idea what's going on. And... <laughs> So that scene is juxtaposed against a flash forward of Mabel at a book signing. And she's talking about Emily Dickinson as this, you know, tragic spinster who had hoped to marry Mm. Judge Lord. And that movie pulls no punches about calling Mabel out for just like fabricating and embellishing these details of Emily's life for her own, you know, fame and fortune. She also tackles the queer erasure around Emily and there is this great electric lit article about wild nights called Emily isn't difficult. She's just misunderstood, mm. uh, which is pretty much like the thesis of I feel like D- yeah. Dickinson and of uh, wild nights, honestly. And it talks a lot about how literary critics have found Dickinson's work slightly out of reach, like very enigmatic. You know, what is she doing? What is she cooking up that mysterious genius? But if you read her work within this queer context, certain details about the poems and her life just make a
1: lot more sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like Mabel is a Karen. Mabel is a Karen, yeah. (laughs) Mabel is a Karen. That's like the big energy I got from her and I really enjoyed (laughs) it. Uh, One of my favorite bits was when the film cut between Emily Purposefully trying to avoid seeing Mabel and Austin shagging constantly, and then Mabel saying over and over again at one of these talks, um, "I never met Emily because she was a recluse," and she kept saying the word "recluse" mm-hmm. over and over again. um You know, rather than just someone she doesn't want to meet. Yeah. And I thought too that the depiction of Sue choosing to marry Austin primarily so she could stay close to Emily was incredibly moving. Mm -hmm. It's kind of um, a lot of the books and films we cover on the show explore women choosing to marry for financial security or social standing. And then to see that representation of how a queer woman would have to navigate marriage was, you know, it was incredibly Mm -hmm. moving to see it. And um, whereas, you know, in Dickinson, they explore like a slightly different angle with the Sue Mm -hmm. thing. And it's Sue is like torn between Austin and Emily and like doesn't know which one to choose and she chooses like almost the path of least resistance right. right and both of those i think are a really valuable story to tell and really representative of what like the decisions and choices that people have to make mm-hmm. yeah uh, and then yeah <laughs> and then you have like the third film <laughs> and Sue <laughs> uh yeah Sue in that Sue just... is in that i guess <laughs> she appears she's on the screen she definitely for a appears. bit Appears,
0: yeah so who so let's get into a quiet passion because i think we'll constantly reference i think dickinson and wild nights in comparison so a quiet passion is a 2016 biopic written and directed by terence davies who has also adapted house of mirth and the deep blue sea love that film version of the deep blue sea by the way it's great um, this film stars Cynthia Nixon as Emily, who you will probably remember as Miranda on Sex in the City, um, or for her unsuccessful bid to become the mayor of New York. That was interesting. Jennifer E. Lay, aka 1995 Lizzie Bennett, plays her sister Lavinia, or Vinnie Dickinson, in case we refer to her as Vinnie. I'm going to start by saying that I don't hate this movie. It's going to sound like I hate this movie.
1: I would like to start by saying I did hate this movie. Um, I will say this
0: definitively, though, that like Terrence Davies and I are just not interested in the same things. Right. So, I mean, I know he's like 75 (laughs) and I'm definitely married, but it would not be a match for us on Tinder. Oh, that's a shame. Like, we wouldn't yeah. even make... He wouldn't make it near my algorithm, <laughs> if that's how that works. He's not I don't coming know. up. He's not coming yeah. up. He's not even...
1: You're going to get, like, the expanding red rings before you get Terrence Davies. Yeah. He'll be like, no more matches in your area. <laughs> this, zero. <laughs> nothing. We got nothing in common. Except for the fact that we do like
0: that Deep Blue Sea adaptation that he did. So, anyway, this film, A Quiet Passion, it's very mannered and stiff, and some of the performances are almost alien, which they're clearly mm. going for a thing, right? Like Davies is possibly trying to be remote. <laughs> <laughs> Although I read an interview with him where he was like, no, we were going for intimacy. And I was like, okay, that's weird. I feel like it's not. Um, there is definitely a thing happening in this film. It's very art house, it's very theater esque. Um, I will say on the plus side, there are some beautiful costumes, great cinematography. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There are scenes that are very funny and smart. And there are some beautiful like sequences that are put together of like poetry, just scenes with beautiful cinematography and lighting and then music that I think are really lovely on their own. But overall, as a piece of work. This was very tough for me to get through. And it's something that I do not want to see again.
1: Yeah. It's funny that you said the performances are almost alien because you've said that. And now I'm like, this is what aliens think human life is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching aliens recreate human life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was like reading through my notes that I wrote while watching it. And 45 minutes in was like the. A tough point yeah. for me. Because I just wrote loads of notes being like, wow, there is still an hour and 15 minutes left and I do not want to watch it. I do not want to watch this film. It's only 45 minutes. I can't <laughs> believe it. I was really like I turned this upset. movie off
0: the first time I tried to watch it about 30 minutes in and didn't yeah, return to okay, it for a while. That makes mm-hmm. sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you said. Like it is beautifully shot and there are some interesting techniques. There is a really freaky unpleasant scene where the young cast morph into the old Mm -hmm. cast and the first time when it happened I didn't realize until it got to Emily and I was like what the (laughs) so then I rewound it and I watched it two more times because I was like this is so scary I'm really glad I didn't see it at the cinema because I think I would have like yelled yeah (laughs) um yeah overall though I did think it was a really boring film (laughs) and uh elegant but repressed is how I would describe it and not for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I did that, I thought that this was gonna be the case though so I intentionally kept this one for mm-hmm. last. I felt like it was gonna be the most typical, like the most like a commercial literary biopic. And by that I do really mean something that smooths out the bumps, the rough edges and like the intricacies of a person's life. I was really reminded by a conversation we had in the Facebook group about the casting of Haley Steinfeld as Emily in Dickinson, the series, um, you know, there were a lot of comments about people like missing Emily's red hair. And A Quiet Passion has the red hair for those of you that really care about that. But for me, what more important than hair colour, just like the absolute soul of a person was missing <laughs> yeah. from it. Yeah. And like, which is more important? Right.
0: Um, I mean, yes, you're right. Cynthia Nixon definitely looks the part of Emily Dickinson. She mm-hmm. does look like who I think she would age into, um, for sure, based on that famous daguerreotype. Oh,
1: they did that casting so mm-hmm. well, but like it was the morphing was, was horrible. horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Effective, but horrible.
0: Um, one big note that I have on Cynthia's performance, though, is I do not care for the way she reads poetry. And if I were casting for this film, that would have been the deciding factor for me, right? Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I know everyone is different, and I know some people are very focused on this person has to look the part, and that is the most important thing about an adapt- adaptation or a buy-up bio- or a biopic. But I'm way more interested in like, can this actor embody the spirit and um, a take a performance, a point of view that we are trying to get across, right? And Nixon's voice is very sweet. And it's a lovely like read of the poetry. There's like no emphasis on specific sentences or words. It just sort of washes over you.
1: There's a point like over an hour in where she finally shouts. And I was like, oh, here is a person. Because I thought her voice was like really affected before Mm -hmm. that. It was like, I thought, was she trying to play younger? It was very soft and very sweet and almost like simpering. Oh, maybe that's like, what she was oh, trying to do. You're right. Okay, trying to talking. be young. Yeah,
0: okay. Because, yeah, it yeah. is very sweet. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, yeah. No, maybe you're right. Maybe that's what she's like trying to do with that. Because I was like, what is she doing with the voice? Why isn't she just like? being a little bit more natural. I feel natural. like they aged
1: that cast up way too early. Yeah. I had no clue how old anyone was meant to be. I had be, no clue. Like, for most of the film. I had no <laughs> clue what what we were doing. With-
0: <laughs> it's weird because um, there's a lot of jumping around in time on Wild Nights, but it does feel more cohesive, mm-hmm. like, time period-wise. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, so, sadly, Nixon, I just didn't take in any of the sort of meaning of the poetry. And that's tough Mm -hmm. in this film where there are so many poems being read to you. And um, Mm -hmm. what I think is actually interesting, if you compare Shannon's performance as Dickinson and Nixon's performance as Dickinson, Shannon actually does a great job of reading the poetry in Wild Nights, so much so that there are scenes that I didn't realize she was reading the poetry. I thought she was just Mm -hmm. saying lines. And then I was like, oh, that's a great line. Oh, yeah, she's reading a poem. (laughs) And so I thought that that was actually really interesting and really gave some of the more difficult poems um, that Dickinson wrote just a fresh meaning. I will say, like, reading poetry is tough. Like, that's just like a different thing. Right. It's just it's not Mm -hmm. just plain acting. I mean, my man, Tom Hiddleston. (laughs) Great at it just look up those youtube videos of him reading poetry he like it's such a skill um or as you're making a face here's an example for you <laughs> thank you uh sam west he's really great at reading yeah. poetry thank and he's, you for catering to my Yes. Needs. <laughs> he has like a whole soundcloud of um of poems that he's been reading over lockdown and just listen to them because it's like yes he's giving you a perspective he's giving you a performance on those poems. He's mm-hmm. not just reading them. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's it's tough. Um, I, I I wrote so many notes down every time she read a poem. I was like lofty, dainty. And it's strange mm-hmm. because she's reading things like, you know, I like the look of agony because I know it is true. Like that's a banger of a line. Right. And I did a terrible performance reading of that because I I don't have that skill at all. It's just like, it's super goth. It's like Mary Shelley. Like you really need to like deliver that line. Mm-hmm. And didn't didn't happen for me in this film. A lot of people loved her performance. I'm gonna say this, like this movie is highly yeah. critically rated. On a positive note, I think that Jennifer Ely was great and she would have been a better fit for the role of Emily. And um, not only do I think in general that she's like an underrated actress, but I mm-hmm. do think that she steals the show in this film because she's very warm and grounded, whereas everyone else is very yeah. mannered and sort of alien. And I think that would have been interesting to see Emily, sort of like our star, grounded in a realistic performance and everyone else sort of being overly mannered and odd would be very interesting. That'd be a point of view that would have worked for me.
1: Yeah, that that sounds great, <laughs> Lauren, honestly. <laughs> Um, I will say that I actually, I really struggled in this film to get a sense of Emily as a writer Mm -hmm. at all. And I felt like they did a really good job of presenting Emily as an accidental genius with just all of this poetry stuck in her head, which is something that we actively fight against on Mm -hmm. this show, right? Um, So it kind of, at those moments, it it was really, really rubbing me the wrong way. Um... And I felt like the readings were completely missable as voiceover in some scenes, especially when it was voiceover and then she gave the next mm-hmm. line. I was like, what? what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I just couldn't follow it. Um, and yeah, I also felt like the way they tried to incorporate inspiration for the poetry fell flat. Yeah. Mainly, I think the time I noticed it most was um, it, the nobody in a quiet passion was a baby. She was holding a baby and she was like, are you nobody? Mm -hmm. Uh, And in Dickinson, it's the specter of a dead young man who's going to die, a premonition of the water come. And I do feel like the director is guilty of, I'm going to say I coined this, but maybe it's been said before, woman washing. So the act of taking something hard and stark and making it overly feminine to fit uh, your view on how a woman would have or should have behaved. Yes, And I think that is what this director is doing in the entire film. I am going to underline that. That is,
0: yes, <laughs> absolutely correct. <laughs> I mean, in my point of view, absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> Curious to know what his thoughts would be on that. But yes, I, yes, I read a lot of interviews with Davies as well. And, um, you know, he kept getting asked, you know, like, oh, you tend to write very strong female characters, that kind of question. And he was like, oh, yes, well, you know, I had a mother and a sister, and they suffered so much, <laughs> and I always admired them. And I was like, well, that's that's getting to the heart of it, right? It's you sort of mm-hmm. viewing women from afar and not trying to think of them as actual people and actual creatives, mm-hmm. which...
1: Noble suffering is absolutely a, f- a theme of yes, this film. Yes, absolutely. And I really loved what you
0: said about like the creation process because that is, I just I can't really think of a moment that it it happens in Dickinson or sorry in a, in a quiet
1: passion. Um, do you see her write? I don't. I can't I remember. Think, I, I don't think I saw her pick up a pen. It's all in her yeah. head, as far as I, I know. I, and I'd have to rewatch <laughs> it, but I would. I mean, that's what I
0: love about Dickinson too. Like going back to the spot episode. One of my favorite moments of that is like she's just really struggling. It's kind of she's worked up in one of those states where like you kind of can't sit down at your desk and write because you're just going to mm-hmm. sort of spiral in, in, in anxiety. Been there. And then you kind of go out into the world and you're trying to experience it. and You're like trying to get like get something started. And then she's in the bathtub and her aunt just says that like sort of throwaway line about forever. And she's like, oh, wait, forever is composed of nows.
1: In season one as well of Dickinson, there's lots of moments where she's like running around her room just writing lines and just luxuriating in her own process mm-hmm. and her own genius and acknowledging it of herself and being like, I am smashing yeah. this. This is great. And it's written down and they make a real point of showing you all of the scraps of paper and just all of like the little bits and how... Small, she's folding them like some horrible Bronte um, <laughs> making tiny books. And even in Wild Nights of Emily, just stacks of paper. Writing is a physical mm-hmm. thing. She was producing physical artifacts and they they are nowhere to be seen in a quiet fashion. No, it's just genius that flows out. It's not actual mm-hmm. work. <laughs> hmm Yes.
0: And I have to say, like for most of the film, I just was like sat here wondering what attracted Davies to Emily Dickinson like i'm like why why even do it cuz you can tell right away with the other two right like i see exactly mm-hmm. what Madeline Olneck and Elena Smith are doing with Wild Nights and Dickinson like the contrast is very mm-hmm. very stark like but for the first half of a quiet passion i just wasn't sure like what it was like what did he want um so the first half of the movie covers her teenage years, relationship with religion, which I thought maybe that might be the theme of the film for a long time, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, then it also contains these sort of over-the-top scenes with Emily and her friend, Riling Boffum, who was a real person, by the way, <laughs> with that name.
1: Uh, was she, she was the biggest alien of she was, wasn't she?
0: Um, <laughs> there's also this like slideshow of the Civil War, which... Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you compare it with Dickinson. That's what I mean where I'm just like, the Civil War is just kind of shoved into this movie. It just happens. It just happens. It happens
1: in three minutes. In a few photographs.
0: And it's like sort of detached from Emily and her daily life. And that, yes. Yeah. Detachment is the right word. And then something interesting happens with the latter half of the movie. So the movie slows down. It becomes literally darker and more claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a movie all about physical anguish. So I guess it's like we're just mm-hmm. setting up who Emily is and now we're going to torture her. I think that's what is going on. Yeah. Um. So there are multiple scenes of Emily collapsing her seizures, as well as extra long death scenes for her and her mother. And um. This is something that stood out to me right away when I watched the film. And I actually started Googling just trying to figure out what Davies was trying to do with Emily's illness. Mm-hmm. And I came up with this interview with no film school. Um, Davies says, I remember when Emily falls down for the first time and begins to shake. I didn't say cut for a very long time. You could hear people thinking he's either gone to sleep or he's completely lost his marbles. Florian the cinematographer, said to me, hey, you're not going to use all that. And I said, you never know. And then here's the reporter's note. He laughs so hard here that he has to pause to wipe a tear away from his eye. So Mm. I have questions whenever a male director lingers too long on scenes of women suffering in a film. And Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to take that as well to comics, because this is something that I have dealt with a lot in comics, Mm -hmm. is that I also have questions when male comic artists have panel after panel after panel of a woman being abused or bleeding or some sort of violence being inflicted Mm -hmm. upon a woman. Um, How much is too much? How much is enough? These are questions I have debated time and time again with men um, in a quiet passion. The camera lingers too long every single time. A good portion of this film is focused on making the audience feel discomfort. That's the thing that, like, I took away from the movie, which I think is really sad as a creative. Like, I don't want to put a piece of work out there that someone's going to say, like, Man, what I took away from this was like violence against women.
1: <laughs> Do you know? I feel like every time, so I, I criticize, I criticize everything because I'm a very a hypercritical person, <laughs> and my friends are exhausted by it. But um, I now I actually can only go to the cinema with a few people because there's only like Sam or my very good friend Tom, um, because I can trust when I say to them. I found this film to be horrifically violent towards women. They will listen to me and won't get into an argument mm-hmm. with me about it. Like after I remember watching Nocturnal, creatures. yeah, that's or Nocturnal that, Animals. Yeah, I was that's really a tough movie. Nocturnal mm-hmm. Animals really yeah. upset me. Um, it was incredibly triggering, <laughs> and um, I was very lucky to have watched it with like a, a safe mm-hmm. person because then after after the fact. Um, other people would like bring it up and I would just be like, someone hates women. Someone involved in the writing and the making of this mm-hmm. hates women. And I am amazed that the film got made. And like, uh, uh, just like, who's it for? Who Who is meant to feel unsafe from watching this? Because I, I don't feel safe knowing that there are people like making this yeah. and like critiquing it and applauding it in the world. It makes me very yeah. sad. Um, so yeah the stuff that you're saying just about like the lingering quality of it and like i'm very sensitive to like seizure <laughs> seizure in films at the moment um and there's just a lot and like the the aftermath of like the stroke and stuff it's um it yeah it does feel gratuitous mm-hmm. at points i like I think it is important to include that stuff and I think the honesty about discomfort that people are facing is important to include so I wouldn't want to like erase it completely right. and I hope no one thinks that that's what we're saying but um, there is a difference between honesty and gratuity.
0: I think exactly right. I don't want it erased. I think especially in that quote that I read from No Film School, um, it's clear that there was discomfort on set, right? If the mm-hmm. cinematographer turns to you like, um, you're not gonna use all of that, right? <laughs> That's that indicates to me that the actor was probably uncomfortable, multiple people were uncomfortable, mm-hmm. the cinematographer was uncomfortable, everyone felt like it had gone a beat too long. And then the fact that he like was laughing about it in the interview, like I don't think yeah. he gets yeah, it. At the law. Yeah, I think mm. he really thinks that he's like depicting a truth that people really need to see. And that's fine. But it's where's the line? Where does it like start to lose effect? Because it lost effect for me as well. Um, Emily's mother's death really didn't have any impact on me at all. But in, Di- in Dickinson, if Jane Krakowski dies, <laughs> I'll be very upset because I formed an mm-hmm. emotional bond with her. It's not because well, I need I to see like, her um... suffering.
1: I felt like Mrs. Dickinson was, like, really minimized in the film. Mm-hmm. And so when she died, I honestly was like, oh, is she not dead yeah. yet? Yeah. <laughs> I, assumed, I assumed that she was already not yeah, with us. That's, that's a good point.
0: And really, I feel like her longest yeah. scene is a very long, drawn-out death scene. Here's another quote from the same interview. And this time it's talking about
1: dialogue. What people don't realise, I think even Americans don't realise this, was that American English was actually very formal in the 19th century. You were imitating Britain because we were the dominant power. Now it's the other way around. We imitate you because you're the dominant power. But you read in the footnotes of books sometimes the way that people spoke and it's very formal. It's much more formal than it is now. And since these were very well-educated women that A Quiet Passion depicts, really much better educated than in Europe, they were witty, they were sharp. You can't give the actors modern English. As soon as you do that, it kills the film stone dead because the audience just thinks, I'm sorry, but they didn't speak like that in 1850. They just didn't. You've got to find a way of getting the flavour of it while still making it entertaining. It's got to sound true. And uh, can I just say, before you make <laughs> your point, I really appreciated the bit where he was like, what Americans don't realize <laughs> about like how they spoke? <laughs> I'm really confused by the... British people suck. <laughs> <laughs> I am so confused by...
0: um, But you read in the footnotes of books sometimes the way that people spoke, and it's very formal. Like, I was like, what? I mean, you... Like, we have letters. Like, we have
1: books. What footnotes are you... What book are you reading that has footnotes that says, like, this is very formal? Yeah.
0: What's happening? I want your reading list, Terrence Davies. Um, <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> so, uh, again, I don't want it to seem like a pile-on of Terrence Davies, but I have a I have a little bit of a diatribe to go on about this quote because... He's not... He
1: will never hear no, this, he Lauren. It's... You, you pile away. One person <laughs> jumping after him and missing is not a (laughs) (laughs) pylon.
0: I will say that I would have had no problem if Davies had said, I didn't want modern, I didn't want modern language in my film because Mm -hmm. that would kill the fantasy for me. Right. That would kill it for me. That's cool. It's his movie, but his vision is not universal. And I think that's something that we should all keep in mind as this series progresses. And Mm -hmm. as we have further conversations about adaptations, like there are different ways of telling a story. That's (laughs) that is like put that on my grave. Right. Like that's. Yeah. That's like my whole thing. You can do it backwards. You can do it in space. You can use modern language in a period drama. You can turn it into a musical like (laughs) you can do whatever you want. It might turn certain people on. It might turn certain people off. Mm -hmm. That's it. All of this is to say that there is no universal audience and not everyone is interested in watching a period drama for accuracy like it's a documentary. And I'm going to say perceived accuracy, right? Because who knows? Um, And also like every storyteller and a lot of historians have an angle, they have a bias, they have an agenda. And that's something that we all need to be like keeping in mind,
1: right? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was gonna say like, ac- the accuracy of what, right. right? So you can cast people who look exactly like an author. You can use, prosth- uh, I can never say this word. You can use prosthetics mm-hmm. to like give them identical noses, but accuracy does go well beyond visual. Um, and the way someone like moves across the screen, what film is it where people like were complaining about how someone walked? Like Kira Knightley didn't walk like Elizabeth Bennett. Or- were they? I've definitely heard that before. Um,
0: I definitely heard it about Ewan McGregor and Emma that he was too contemporary. Uh, his walking style was too contemporary. Yes, that's yeah. it. You
1: told me that. Yeah, yeah. This film did feel just like a big swing and a miss for me in terms of accuracy. And I do think that I would have learned maybe as much looking at a wax model in a museum with just a really well-written, like, uh, plaque next to yeah. it. it. It wasn't like a living, breathing interpretation of a person. Mm-hmm. The, the scene where she's shouting, I think she's shouting at her brother, mm-hmm. Austin, and she just really, like, lets him have it. Um, and she's treated as being unreasonable for doing it. But I was just like, oh, finally, that felt yeah. like a breathing moment. And it was one, it was like one bit. And then it was over and it just went back to being mannered. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. It's also like the shot setups that he chooses
0: where he like will have everyone mm-hmm. sort of dead center, almost like a Wes Anderson style movie where mm-hmm. it feels quirky. But, but then less charming. It's not. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think. The costumes in this film are gorgeous and the hairstyles, but nothing looks out of place. So Mm -hmm. that's really difficult for me in a film. Um, And that goes to the accuracy. I feel like there's so much attention paid to everyone was formal. So you have to be formal all of the time, including with people Mm -hmm. who are your closest friends and family. Right. There's no moment for you to relax or breathe or actually be Mm -hmm. a human person because everyone in the 1850s was not a human person. And Mm -hmm. yeah, again, like the costumes are all so clean and pressed and well-lit that it doesn't look like a real space. It looks like a theatrical space. It Mm -hmm. looks like they... I can see that they've just called action and the scene has started. Yeah,
1: It feels like the difference between a comic illustrated by an animator versus an illustrator. Mm -hmm. There's no movement between the panels. It's just this is a shot, this is a shot, this is a shot. They're not like flowing into each mm-hmm. other.
0: And not to say that it's like, it's wrong. Cause I think there's no. different styles, right? For everyone, but yes, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's just not something that like we connect to. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm not going to leave it on a total downer. Cause I was like watching this film. And I was like, I'm going to find some good things, right? <laughs> So I'm going to name a couple of scenes that I actually really liked. And um, one was when Susan and Emily were giggling over books. And I feel like this is maybe their one big scene, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're just, you know, having a moment and giggling over all these books that they're going to read together, including the Brontes, George Eliot. And then they break down and they're like, even Mrs. Gaskell. And I was like. Yeah, I didn't get it. I was like, what's going on? Like, what's so ridiculous about that? And I laughed, but I also was like, someone help me out. Gaskell experts help me out. Did she have like a terrible reputation in the
1: 1850s? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Is this about the biography? What's the joke? I once watched, like, an, inside, uh, an entire set of Swedish comedy in Swedish and, like, just laughed when I heard an English <laughs> word. And they were like, why are you laughing? And I was like, oh, because I recognized <laughs> a word. I recognized methamphetamine. <laughs> 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 and, like, this is that. It's just, like, the whole film. And then they're like, Mrs. Gaskell. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I know, I know like, her. <laughs> What's the deal? What's Emily's take on Mrs. Gaskell? Maybe I need to investigate that. Unclear. Um, there's not a lot of music in this film. So, in fact, the movie feels very still, and very silent, Mm -hmm. um, which becomes uncomfortable at times for effect, I'm guessing. But there is a lovely sequence where we have Emily sort of like lit by candlelight and there's a bit of poetry in the voiceover and it's followed by some like lovely operatic music and it's sort of a wonderful way to take in the poetry like the scene has great visual flow again mm-hmm. i i take you know issue with the the reading of the poems but it was lovely i was like that's really lovely and like art house and i actually could i could be okay with just like a lot of that <laughs> but we don't have a lot of that um My favorite scene in the whole movie is with Emily and her father at the breakfast table. And he turns to her to complain that one of the dishes is dirty and she takes it and she just breaks it. And Mm. it's really, really short and actually maybe a hair too short for like editing and pacing purposes, because it just kind of like bursts in and then bursts out. Mm. And. One of the things that I find so interesting about that scene is that it absolutely could have been in Dickinson or Wild Nights.
1: Yeah, 100%. I really uh, enjoyed that one Mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely, like the connecting thread. Uh, I know you didn't want to finish this on a downer, but I do think this episode could have been called like Emily and Sue Dickinson because so much of Dickinson and Wild Nights with Emily is about that relationship with Sue And even that could be like the real linking factor, almost like the point that we were making. Mm -hmm. Um, But Sue is just almost completely erased in a quiet passion. I did watch this last of all. And so I I really felt the impact of Mabel Todd in this film. Um, And like those other early publishers and biographers of Emily's, just erasing that relationship. And instead of, lifelong friends sue is presented simply as austin's wife who is introduced to them at the point of marriage a a very dutiful wife who just silently endures her husband's affair uh, an affair that even lavinia is then defending to emily and uh, who in turn is criticized for feeling too strongly for a married man yeah it is like it's like the Mabel from Wild Nights wrote a Quiet Passion, <laughs> in my opinion. Like this is her fan fiction. Yeah. Um, and that it's 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 sad. I felt sad mm-hmm. about the Sue stuff, and I kept wondering, like that scene where they. I have a note where they were talking about the authors. I was like, are we gonna now? Are we gonna get into it? Mm-hmm. And also, Miss Buffum, I thought I was like, is she gonna? Is this like an early relationship that hasn't been covered? in the other shows but just nothing it's so heteronormative i know you talk a lot about this in the interview that is shared next week so i think it's like i'm extra thankful to have that interview with madeline Mm -hmm. to kind of go hand in hand with this episode because um it's pretty it's pretty shocking yeah it is so
0: those are our thoughts on Emily on screen not all of them they've been edited down all of them (laughs) Uh. so um next week we will be chatting with the writer and director of wild nights with Emily um and in the meantime we would love to hear your thoughts on these biopics you know have you watched any what did you think Hannah where can the good people let us know
1: absolute best place to let us know is on our social media channels and not sliding into our DMs. Yes, please. (laughs) uh, You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn. And if you'd like to read a book that isn't about Emily Dickinson and references her just one Mm -hmm. time, then please consider purchasing our book why she wrote which is the graphic history of 18 women writers from the 18th 19th and 20th centuries true story all right guys (laughs) bye